Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. No man whatever, having lent his money to the government on the credit of a parliamentary fund, has been defrauded of his property. The goodness of the public credit in England is the reason we shall never be out of debt. Let us be, say I, a free nation deep in debt, rather than a nation of slaves owing nothing. Now, these words from an anonymous pamphleteer dating from 1719, believed to be, I think, Daniel Defoe, strike a strikingly positive note about deficits and public borrowing. In more recent years, however, people have started to question the goodness of the public credit. 20 years ago, Britain's national debt stood at around 30% of GDP, the measure of national output. Now it's around 100% and scheduled to go higher. The recent mini-budget showed that public tolerance for large deficits, even in advanced economies, is not infinite. Long-term interest rates, which set consumer borrowing costs such as the mortgage rate, have ballooned. And Jeremy Hunt's recent budget was explicitly designed to undo the damage and repair relations with the bond markets. But this leads a whole host of questions. How high is too high? What causes the erosion of public confidence? And are there lessons we can learn from the past? We decided to do a two-part series on the national debt. The first episode will look at the history of Britain's national debt, how high it's been and how it was managed. And the second, next week, will look at where we are and the lessons. So for this first episode, we're very pleased to be joined by James MacDonald, a financial historian, and author of a fantastic book on the history of state borrowing, A Free Nation Deep in Debt. James, welcome. Well, well thank you very much for having me on the, on the show. Now, before we go into the journey of Britain's public debt over the centuries, I really want to start at the beginning which is, I guess, 1694. Maybe you can explain, James, a bit about why the national debt starts from that point. Where does the idea come from? Is Britain copying other ideas? Yeah, Britain is definitely copying ideas. It's it's relative latecomer to this game. It's not that there hadn't been any public debts in Britain before, but they've been very small and, generally speaking, very badly handled as compared to some examples elsewhere. The most striking thing that happened, of course, just before this was the glorious revolution of 1688, where you suddenly got a Dutch king on the throne. And of course, Holland had been the most uh, remarkable practitioner of the arts of public borrowing, and in fact, had borrowed its way more or less to independence from from Spain in the first half of uh, of the 17th century. And so one of the things that happened, as soon as he got to the throne, he immediately pulled England into a war with France against Louis XIV, and suddenly there was need for a large amount of public borrowing. And so it, the fact that it got going then in the UK on, on a large scale is no coincidence at all. Well, it grows very, very quickly. Well, it, because it was in wartime. I mean, there was that, you know, you were immediately plunged into the war, some, you, the war of the League of Augsburg, which lasted uh, until 97. And then, of course, with only a brief pause, you were back into the War of Spanish Succession in 1702. And, and, and so public debt simply ballooned at incredible speed in the next 20 years. And in the early days, there is this idea, is there not, that you should try and repay the national debt? It's not a permanent fixture. And indeed, you have, in France and in Britain in the 1710s, 
this idea that there are schemes, sort of almost debt to equity swaps being proposed by various entrepreneurs to get rid of the public debt. The public debt is sort of odd. You've got two things going on sort of simultaneously. One is that the sort of almost the earliest form of public debt that was created, other than some very short-term borrowings just from merchants or something of that sort, was in fact permanent debt. The, the consuls, which came to be very characteristic of British public finance until they were finally repaid, were in fact following continentally examples, and they were perpetual debts. So the reason really goes back to the usury laws, which in the Middle Ages made any form of interest payment unacceptable. Perpetual debt was almost a sort of a strange scheme, because if you didn't have the obligation to repay the principal, you can repay it whenever you like, but you don't have to repay it, then you couldn't really quite easily classify it as a debt in the same way that if a debt had a sort of specific maturity. So the very earliest forms of public debt, which were invented in the Middle Ages, tended to be perpetual. So you start off this concept with with the idea actually of debt being potentially perpetual, but at the same time, a strong feeling that you oughtn't to have too much of it. So you immediately get into a scheme of how to repay them. And one of the solutions is the sinking fund, which was, goes back to the Middle Ages, where you set up a fund and that is dedicated to rebuying, uh, repurchasing the debt in the market at very often a lower price than, than, than the nominal price. And then, of course, after all the wars of Spanish succession, yes, then you get all private equity swaps coming in, which is a quite a remarkable story. Could you just sort of sketch out for us particularly the, the, the law scheme and why it failed? That's, of course, John Law rather than some legal scheme, just for our listeners yes, who may John not Law, know it. Scottish. John Law. John Law was, was a remarkable Scotsman who managed to transform French public finance and to some extent the whole of European public finance for a very brief period of about a year and a half. He, he had a, a vision of using this vast public debt swap to expand the French economy, probably virtually up to the level of doubling it in size, conceivably in his grander vision of things. But even his was not the first to do a a public for private equity swap, because what people early, at least in Britain and France, reckoned that it was easier in some ways for the state to borrow if it was an indirect borrowing. The very first stable borrowing that they got in Britain was, in fact, with the invention of the Bank of England, because the first thing that the Bank of England did was to lend a large sum in perpetual annuities. And the people who were the investors in the Bank of England, therefore, the largest amount of their capital was, in fact, indirectly debt to the government. And this was the cheapest and most successful form of debt that the British government was able to borrow in this early period. And people looked at this as some kind of model Then when you got to the end of the war of Spanish succession and you've got a very large amount of rather messy debt built up in the UK, then you came to the South Sea scheme, which obviously was the parent or a few years later of the South Sea bubble, which was Britain's answer to John Law. Just to hop in, the thing that links John Law's scheme and the South Sea bubble is in both cases, the promoter of the scheme, the South Sea company or, or Law himself, is saying to holders of these perpetual annuities, this government debt, swap it for shares in an enterprise, in Law's case, to do with the Mississippi colony that France had, and in Britain to do with 
trade with the South Seas. They were both, as it were, colonial enterprises. And this was at the beginning of the great age of imperialism and the huge amounts of money that could potentially be made with great trading schemes. And they thought it would be cheaper for the state to borrow from these companies and then these companies to raise shares in, in the market. So John Law was following on from, from a, a scheme that had already worked. It's just he had a grander vision and took on more debt than anybody had ever imagined, where he took the whole yeah. of the French public debt, equivalent to probably in excess of 100% of GDP at the time, and planned to swap it for shares in a private company, which was a, an extreme and astonishing vision. Now, these schemes both fail. Why do they fail? They fail for slightly different reasons. I mean, they, 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 in John Law's case, because he was planning to reduce French borrowing costs, which had been pushing northwards towards 10%, down to 2%, because he thought that if the shares in his scheme were correctly <laughs> priced, he would be able to lend to the French government at effectively as low as 2%. Well, this was an extraordinarily radical scheme. I mean, if, if he'd been satisfying saying, we'll reduce it to 5% or 4%, which might have been something resembling a normal market, he might possibly have had a better chance of getting away with it. But at 2%, the only way to do it, he'd previously set up a state bank, and basically, he flooded the market with money. So you could end up with shares worth four or five times your your initial investment. And so he stoked an enormous, basically, speculative boom in order to get his share price up to a level where it looked as if the French government was able to borrow at 2%. But the end result was the amount of paper he floated was hyperinflationary. And the whole scheme collapsed basically out of hyperinflation. But a few years later, the French basically cancelled everything to do with his scheme, burnt all the records and reverted to where it had been before the whole thing started. <laughs> oh, well, I think our current uh, Treasury would like to do the same thing with, with all the debt that's uh, outstanding. But that's another question. <laughs> and do those, when those schemes fail, is that the point when the idea that the national debt is going to be a permanent feature of the scene it, kind it, of it's just gradually people come to accept it because you never seem to get a chance to repay it i mean it's not as if you don't repay bits and pieces at least in the uk it was basically always a war debt and if you were in peacetime you ran surpluses and you started repaying it there was no doubt that did happen whether through a sinking fund or just by paying things off which you could always do i mean all these perpetual debts you could pay off anytime you like there was no restriction but the wartime debts were always vastly larger than the peacetime surpluses, so that all it did through the 18th century was just to mount up and up and up till it reached a, an extraordinary total of about 250% plus of GDP by the time you get to the Napoleonic Wars. And so all the peacetime yeah. repayments have become relatively meaningless. I mean, you get uh, David Hume, the, the great Scottish philosopher, claiming that, that, that the debt's going to bankrupt the country, and you get Adam Smith warning that when it gets too big, there's no solution except to inflate it away. I mean, there are constant warnings about the size of the debt. And so, as you say, the debt mounts up to about 240% of GDP by 1816, the end of the Napoleonic Wars. People are constantly saying it's gone too far. And then there are people questioning whether you shouldn't repay it on the cheap. I mean, one thing which had happened in the Napoleonic Wars had been a lot of inflation, particularly in the last 10, 10 years. So there was one of the thoughts was that you would uh, repay the debt. You could either do it at market value, which was obviously lower because a lot of this had been raised at uh, relatively low interest rates and prices had fallen during the war, or you could repay it at some complicated calculation. So, so the owners got it only at the price level that they had actually contributed the debt in the first place. 
but none of these came to anything, probably more than anything else, because people realized, and there were a lot of people writing this, that the fact that England had run its public finances so successfully and never defaulted on its debt, unlike the French kings, was the reason why it was able to outspend France in spite of being a considerably smaller country in those days. So the fact they could outspend France successfully was all to do with the ability to borrow money cheaply. I want to then turn to what happens over the long years of peace in the 19th century. There's no war. So unlike the 18th century, where the national debt has climbed and climbed and climbed, it declines substantially as a percentage of GDP, down from that 250% to about 30% in 1900. Yes, I mean, it's, it's fallen very, very far. I mean, it's almost fallen back to where it started. Mostly, it's done through economic growth. I mean, that is by far the biggest factor, that, that, that GDP from 1815 to 1914 has grown by a huge amount. The debt has, however, shrunk. The debt's gone down by about 200 million during that period. So it's not as if there hasn't been debt repayment. And in fact, on my calculations, you have about 360 million that was repaid over the course of, of 100 years. So, it, so it's not insignificant. It's a very gradual process. And the main source of public expenditure in those days is, is military. Once you're in peacetime, you don't have huge state spending. And the main source of, of, of spending immediately after Napoleonic War was, in fact, public debt interest. This was running at levels that were close to 10% of GDP. I mean, levels that it's never come anywhere close to since. I mean, the most it's ever got after any war or threatened with being even nowadays or anything's about 5% of GDP. But so during the 19th century, the bond vigilantes presumably melt away because there's nothing really for them to complain about. They're paid very well. And of course, the other thing that happens is that interest rates fall because they've, they've risen in peacetime so that you've been borrowing at a cost of 5.5% maybe for long-term debt. When you have this perpetual debt, and it was all pretty much in the form of perpetual debt, so how can you reduce the interest cost? Well, because it can always be repaid at part any time, if interest rates fall, the market value of these bonds will rise above par in the way that you know interest yields and market prices operate in inverse. So the moment it rises above par, you can threaten people with repayment at par unless they accept a reduction in interest rate. And this happened regularly throughout the 19th century to the last great conversion in the 1880s where they persuaded the entire market to accept a reduction down to 2.5%. Debt interest had fallen by 50%, with a, with a huge reduction in, in interest cost, of course. So, so, so interest as a percent of GDP from, had fallen from 10% down to something that was almost vanishingly small. So the 19th century is a, is a golden age, an age of peace. But then we come to the 20th century, which is a century of war again. Certainly the first half, you see a very different dynamic. Yes, no, the two world wars are fought at a level of intensity and financially also fought at a level which makes the Napoleonic Wars look quite sort of pale into insignificance, the levels of, of deficits that they engender. It took a long time for public debt to rise but from sort of virtually 0% to 250%. But, you know, in, in the First World War, it goes from 25% of GDP to well over 100% in just a few years. And the same with, with the Second World War. Right? Again, in just a few years, it rises from sort of something under 100% to 250%. But by then, the market is a lot more sophisticated than it was. And it is sort of vulnerable to what we might call today financial repression, particularly in the Second War. So that's a sort of slightly different calculation. Before we get to the Second World War, I just want to talk a bit about the interest cost as a percent of GDP. 
so after the war, it continues to climb and it gets to about seven and a half percent, which is not quite as high, but it's a yeah, it's a pretty substantial yeah, no, number. This is the exception to these rules is the Second World War, because the the rule of thumb, which is one of the reasons you've been able to borrow relatively cheaply during all previous wars, is that everybody understood that basically there was always wartime inflation, but it was going to be followed by deflation after the war. And then you would say you have long term price stability. And in fact, if you look at sort of price levels from 1700 to 1900, you can see more or less that that was true. And if that came at the cost of, of a big recession, not to say depression, that was a price that you paid. It was the price that had been paid at the end of the Napoleonic War, where there was a very considerable recession at the time referred to as the revulsion after the war in the, in, in the late <laughs> teens and the early 20s. And this is the time you get the Peterloo massacre. And there's a, there's a lot of political repression. Of course, the problem is that you've got a very different political situation. You suddenly now have universal suffrage You've got um, trades unions and you've got all sorts of things that didn't occur in the after the Napoleonic War. So that the politics of trying to sort of insist on deflation after the First World War is very tough, you know, and most countries don't really try it. America tries it, but America didn't have the same problems because it hadn't had the same level of inflation, hadn't had the same level of war expenditure, of war debts. On the continent of Europe, nobody tries it. It's just impossible. I mean, they just go off either into hyperinflation like all the countries that lost, including not just Germany famously, but all the Austro-Hungarys and the component parts all, all there, or very, very high inflation like France and Italy, all of which basically eliminate large quantities effectively de facto of their debt. The UK tries the old-fashioned route, but it is extraordinarily painful, and it comes at an enormous cost. I mean, the 20s is truly a lost decade. I mean, in the teeth of this, you know, worldwide depression, which was, I mean, on a scale that is probably unequal before or since. But of course, one of the pluses, it's rather like, um, you know, Black, Black Friday, that coming off. Black Wednesday, I think you mean. Yes, I do mean. It's, uh, Black, Black Friday is saying rather different. <laughs> was a blessing in disguise, because basically it enabled the country to start recovering from the depression of the early 30s. It was one of those instances, actually rather like 19, 1990s, where the operations of the market were actually putting pressure on the government were actually beneficial. And then we see that in the 30s, in that both debt to GDP comes down, presumably because GDP recovers, and the interest cost really dramatically declines before the Second World War. Right, because then they're able to refinance all the debt with this, with this war loan, which basically was only just repaid relatively recently, amazingly enough. Yes, I remember when it uh, when it the price of when the price yeah more or less I remember when the price equaled the equaled the yield I think it's about eighteen and a half pounds equals eighteen and a half percent yield I remember it happening I'm that old well I can, I can just about remember it too I mean it was just that was just sort of starting out in the in the city when all all that happened I mean it was completely. An, an astonishing moment. And the opposite, again, of what had happened before in previous wars. The assumption was that if you lent money to the government at a high interest rate during the war, when you were taking some risk because of the you, who knew what the outcome of the war was going to be, you were rewarded not just by being repaid after the war, but also having the price of your bonds go up 
This is uh, unprecedented, really. The monetary regime that followed the Second War was in complete contrast to all the ones before then, and you failed to get the sort of rebalancing back and the sort of deflation or the, the, the falling prices to, to restore the bondholders. Some of us might say it's sort of been downhill ever since, really, and certainly until uh, the first couple of decades. I mean, one thing which did happen after the Second World War was the running of budget surpluses, which seems completely counterintuitive. I mean, after all, the Conservatives were kicked out, Labour was put in, and under the Attlee government were busily going around, you know, people imagine throwing, throwing money around the place like confetti in order to establish the welfare state and this, that and the other. And yet it managed in by the late 40s, not in the immediate aftermath of war where expenses were still very high, to run cumulative budget surpluses of 12% of GDP at the same time as bringing in, bringing in the welfare state. So there was this post-war retrenchment in terms of re-establishing budget discipline, shall we say. What there was not was any attempt to keep sterling at, at its old value. I mean, sterling had been sort of pegged artificially during the war, but that was not a real market, of course. You know, the Americans, in turn, for, for, the, for a big loan at the end of the war to, to repay effectively lend-lease, insisted that these controls were taken off by 1947, you know, much opposed by people in Britain who were terrified about what would happen if, it, if that occurred, because there were massive exchange controls. I mean, sterling had been, after a bit of chaos at the beginning of the war, had been pegged just around four, four $4 to the pound, right? A bit lower than its historical rate, but still high. That was considered acceptable as an exchange rate, but they wanted all exchange controls off by 1947 in exchange for the big end of war loan. But of course, as soon as they took them off, the pound collapsed like a house of cards and they had to put them back again within, I think, a couple of weeks or something like that. And by 1949, of course, then they had a big devaluation of not just the pound, but actually lots of currencies. It was quite apparent that the old exchange rates against the dollar, nobody was going to do it because nobody anymore was going to accept the kind of unemployment that it was going to take to do so. That was the big change from the First World War to the Second World War. And it was thanks to particularly to the 30s, but in the, in the States, obviously, where the unemployment had got so high, but actually to the whole interwar period in the UK, because unemployment had been high throughout the 20s as well. So in the post-war period, we see once again this down leg of public debt to GDP goes down, really almost retraces its steps from the 19th century from 250% in 1945 to about 30% in 1992, which I think is the, the low point. Well, I want to focus on one decade, though, because it's one that people often talk about in the context of where we are now, which is, of course, our old friend, the 1970s. There obviously are a series of what are called guilt strikes, I think. And definite evidence of bond vigilantes prowling around in the 1970s, even though the debt is obviously coming down as a percentage of GDP. What is the dynamic there? What's driving all that? Well, I mean, I think that what had happened is that you'd had a period of gradually rising inflation, which had then completely become unleashed in the 1970s. And you'd had interest rates, which had, after all, had been, had been very low at the end of the war, partly because of financial repression during the war. They'd been able to borrow at 3%, more or less, throughout the war. Financial repression is when you have a series of controls, most obviously exchange controls, so that people can't take their money out of the, out of the country. So that means they're a captive audience, more or less. And then you basically have the government, through the operations of the central bank and the treasury, meaning that people's money, they're not really free to do what they want with their money in various 
shape or form through a combination of tax policy, through a combination of what they can do in terms of investment. So it means that basically the government can borrow money at sort of whatever price it likes. But what happens in the 70s? Why does, even though we still had exchange controls in the 70s, the government clearly can't borrow money at whatever price it likes in, in that decade? <laughs> no, well, of course they can't, because they, in the end, the, the suckers got fed up with being suckered. Uh, okay. And after having lost their capital, both in terms of the nominal value and see it in, uh, eroded by inflation at the same time, they got to the point where they decided that they were prepared to strike. And there were actually buyer strikes where the government had to issue stock at a ruinous price in order to persuade the buyers to come at all. Quite right. This is, this is what happened. But I think what one has to bear in mind, this was not just the product of an oil crisis. That was just the final straw. But basically, this was the product of the entire post-war period. The government was borrowing at either zero or negative real interest rates for basically from the war on. And by the 70s, these negative real interest rates had ballooned, but they'd been high. Inflation was pushing six, seven, eight percent for years, even before you got to the oil crisis. Slowly but surely, the bond markets had had already started pushing borrowing costs up towards 10% by the early 70s. I mean, this was a slow, gradual process, but even 10% turned out not to be enough. You know, you can imagine that even when you've got interest rates up to 10%, and then you suddenly get inflation at 25%, I mean, the market is going to strike. And, And the other thing that is really notable about it is once you've gone through this period, which is really decades worth of build up to these buyer strikes and that when you do start to get inflation down in the 80s onwards, it takes a long time of very high positive real interest rates before the market's willing to lend you money ever again at sort of a, a cheap rate. I can remember, I'm afraid, that in 1976, the government had to pay 15.5% for 20-year money, yeah. which seems incredible today. Well, it was true in the US too. I mean, their moment of crisis came under Volcker in the second oil crisis, but they were paying 15% at the peak, you know, which is even more amazing for the US that you felt that have the privilege to pay almost what it liked. But the same process to a lesser degree had happened there. You know, years and years and years of negative real interest rates which the market finally set up already. I want to just touch on one aspect of this, which we haven't talked about so far, which is the changing nature of the state and its responsibilities and the extent to which that changes attitudes to the public debt, i.e. we're now, I think, in a world where the idea of running a 12% surplus, as they did in 1946 or whenever it was, if we ever run a 12% surplus again, I shall eat my hat. But to what extent does that thing where these big build-up of permanent expenditure like the welfare state takes place, does it change things? I mean, there there are probably two things happening at once. One is the influence of Keynesian economics as a byproduct of the 1930s depression, the feeling that you should never be allowed deflation again, that also that public debt is really not some sort of moral obligation so much as a vehicle of economic management in order to keep the economy working properly, and that therefore, more or less constant borrowing is a fact of life. You add that on to the ever-increasing role of the state in public life, which has been true everywhere, 
and you get a recipe for constant borrowing. And so even though the debt levels have fallen the percentage of GDP rather similarly, as you said they did in the 19th century, this is not because debt had been repaid. And it's just simply a question that GDP has gone up faster. Because, of course, now you've got, even when inflation calmed down eventually, historically high inflation throughout the 80s, um, if not on 70s level remotely, then you start getting central banks being given inflation targets of 2%. I mean, it had been useless giving them an inflation target in, in the 80s because you, inflation rates were still running you know, higher than that. By the 90s, it was conceivable. But 2% by historical standards is very high. Nobody would have accepted that. 0% was the only conceivable rate of inflation that anybody thought was normal over the long term, not over the short term, but over the long term. So, that, so all this builds in a scenario that if you're going to keep debt to GDP's ratio stable, you basically have to borrow the whole time. Can I ask about one other aspect, which is the nature of the public debt? And I think it might be a consequence of the 1970s is the introduction of interest-linked debt. So debt that changes its interest rate in response to inflationary circumstances. Is this designed really as a way of saying, we're not going to have any more inflation, so we'll give you this free kind of assurance, which is uh, that if it does, you'll get a higher interest rate? It certainly, I mean, it came in in and the the UK was a leader, at least amongst the G7 countries uh, in, in introducing it. And it was precisely in the wake of the events of the 70s. One of the things which is quite striking about it in the UK is that not only the amount, and it's now you know, 25% of all public debt is in the form of index link, but also that it's very long term. And I think that uh, in the wake of all these buyer strikes, because obviously it's long term debt that is most vulnerable to inflation, you know, having inflation linked issues enabled you to keep a long term structure to the debt because people are willing to lend you much more readily over the long term if they think they've got inflation protection. So it was sort of a mea culpa for all the events of the post-war era, I think. Yes. The reason why they did it was because it looked cheaper than trying to issue conventional long-term debt. And indeed, until very recently, it has proved to be much cheaper because the buyers were prepared to accept a much lower return for the comfort of the indexation. And when inflation seemed to be cured at 2% or less, that looked like cheap money for the government. We know a bit better now. Yes, absolutely. And for a very long time, it was. Of course, now you're suddenly caught on the horns of a dilemma with two very difficult situations going on, which has never historically applied before, of having a lot of index-linked debt so that your ability to inflate the debt away is considerably limited as compared to what it was after the Second World War. And also, because of QE, a huge amount held by the central bank, which is in an inflationary environment, supposed to be busy busy selling it all off in order to, to bring inflation down. This is this is an unprecedented quite and quite dangerous situation. One thing it does do between these two events of QE and index linked debt, it gives the government a very strong incentive to bring inflation down because the cost of not doing so is going to be very hard to deal with. So to that extent, you could argue, yes, that's very interesting. You know, because because the QE problem will yes. also go away. If they can get inflation magically back to 2%, which of course they probably can't, almost undoubtedly can't, then all these problems basically evaporate. But it needs, I fear that the medicine is high short-term rates in order to achieve that. Given your sort of long view of the national debt and and the whole question of debt sustainability, public borrowing crises along the way, 
how would you cite this one that we're now in in the context of the past? Is it possible really to see a historical analogy? Can we learn something from what happened in the past? I mean, there certainly have been cycles of rapid inflation, a spike followed by inflation disappearing. In fact, it was it was sort of normal. I mean, the idea of real interest rates was not one that entered into the minds of people in the 18th and 19th century, because they just assumed that they, they made assuming that unless people really tampered with the currency, the fact was the price levels in the long term were probably steady, because why wouldn't they be sort of thing. But within that, if you look at price levels, they were not in any sense like they are now. And I think the biggest reason, probably more than anything else, is this is pre-industrial revolution or early stages of industrial revolution. So agriculture was a much bigger part of, of the economy. Food prices are intrinsically much less stable than industrial prices because you've got crop variation. And so the idea that you suddenly might get wheat costing you know, 50% more than it did the last year or 50% less than it did the year before was something that people were quite used to. And they could think that that was a big impact on people's living standards and it could go either way. So you can certainly find, again, in wars, people were used to the idea that there would be wartime inflation on top of what might just be the natural variation of food prices because of demand pressures, which would come off at the end of the war. So, and you can see it if you try and create a price in this disease, of this, as people have. They're much more variable than they are now. So in that sense, there is a history, whether it's relevant to now, I'm not sure, because as I say, industrial societies <laughs> operate in a different way. And this, I suppose, the, the only historical equivalent is flipping out of the 1930s into the 1940s, where you come out in an environment which is considered to be fundamentally deflationary. And the biggest risks to finance uh, were, in fact, deflation. And, and you've gone seemingly overnight into the opposite. That's not the 70s experience at all, as we've discussed. But it is, to some extent, the experience of China going from the 30s, where people felt that deflation was entrenched into the 40s. And in fact, at the end of the Second World War, there was still a view that if you weren't careful, you would tip back into deflation as you had after the First World War. Well, I think we've covered a huge yeah. amount of ground. You've done a fantastic job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.